we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Bear Sage Institute colleague, co-host Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we're honored we have Jordan Birnbaum with us, the Chief Behavioral Economist from ADP. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's going great, Ron. Still recovering from my trip to Dubai, but other than that, pretty good. Are you a little jet lag still? Yeah, yeah. I, it, it, you know, it sneaks up on you. It's like you think you got it licked, and then you know you're waking up in the middle of the night. So, but I'm good. All good. Yeah, uh, that's a long trip. Uh, yeah. Well, Ed, you know, Monday's tax day, so um, I'm bummed out doing my uh, taxes. I owe, so I'm not a happy <laughs> camper today. But I'll try not to take that out on our guests. Uh, we have, and and uh, I met Jordan at the CPA.com Thought Leaders. Um, Symposium or CPA Practice Advisor, sorry, the Thought Leader Symposium in Indianapolis last month, and he uh, was ADP's keynote speaker. And he gave a great talk on behavioral economics, and I got to sit next to him during dinner, and we had a great conversation. And I said, "Oh well, Jordan, you got to come on." So, let me read your bio real quick, Jordan, and then we'll get you in here. Jordan Birnbaum has been with ADP since 2015 as VP and Chief Behavioral Economist. He directs the application of behavioral economic principles into new product development in the human capital management market. Prior to joining ADP, and I'm definitely gonna ask him about this, Jordan was the owner-operator of the Vanguard in Los Angeles, a hybrid media production and live music venue employing more than 150 people for close to a decade. He was a founding employer employee and senior vice president business development of Juno online services playing a key role in a successful IPO and then beating analysts estimates for six consecutive quarters. He graduated from Cornell University with a BS in policy analysis and from New York University with an MA in industrial organizational psychology. Jordan, welcome to the soul of enterprise. Wow, it sounds like I've been busy. Yeah, <laughs> I think you have. I, I got to ask you, tell me, because uh, when we talk, were talking at dinner last month, uh, you told some great stories about when you lived in Southern California and hanging out on the Bill Maher set in the green room on the show. And <laughs> tell me about the Vanguard. Oh, gosh, yeah. It's always the celebrity stories that uh, lead the way. So... Um, <laughs> How I ended up in the Vanguard is in and of itself a very funny story, and I, I always feel compelled to provide the context uh, because I don't want to be bundled into the stereotype of a typical nightclub owner. Um, so essentially, let me share with you how I got there and then how that led to the green room of, of Real Time with Bill Maher. Um, so after I had been at Juno for quite some time, uh, and I'm dating myself here a little bit, but uh, I remember one day the first ever viral video that I can recall came across my desk and it was the first South Park video. Uh, this is before they were a TV show on Comedy Central 
and it was an animation that people were just emailing to one another, and it was hilarious. Uh, and obviously, someone at Comedy Central uh, received the email themselves and made a phone call. But in advance of that, I remember being struck by what this represented about the future of media. Um, historically, in the past, TV uh, production studios would spend millions of dollars on something called a pilot episode, where they would shoot an idea for a show and then show it to people and get a sense of whether or not they thought it was going to be popular and when it was. They would go on and produce the show in full, but when it wasn't, they would just write it off as a lost investment. And as I'm looking at this emailed production clip that must have cost very little financially, but quite a bit in terms of time uh, to put together, what I realized was they had already answered the question of whether or not this was going to be popular when they built it online. And so the need to create pilot episodes for future media endeavors uh, was going away because the Internet was going to provide us with a new meritocracy for media. And that got me very excited. And my thought was... I want to go out there and become the Lauren Michaels of the Internet. I want to create a space whereby all this new talent is emerging and serve as a hub to capture lots of eyeballs and then allow the public to decide what's good. And once we can surface what's good, how do we turn that into a broader media property? And so that was my original vision when I left Juno to go start my own company. And I went down this path, and I started investing in a bunch of projects that were, were a lot of fun to me. But at some point, I had this realization that I'm only spending money, and I have no idea when I'm <laughs> going to start generating revenues uh, in return. And I had to figure out a way to create uh, a cash flow. And so the bright idea, which I will put in quotes when I say it because it's, it's an ironic uh, categorization, um, the bright idea was to house a media production company inside a live entertainment venue. So the idea was that my future animators would work the door and my future directors would become bartenders and the like. And we would all by day work on creating new media and then at night open the doors and try to make a living until one of our media projects took off. And so that was the grand vision. And like everything in life, it went a lot smoother in my head than it did in reality. And uh, this is what brought me out to California to try to execute this vision. And long and short of it is, what's funny is that ultimately the venue itself, which was supposed to be a means to an end, became very successful. All of the media projects that we tried to fund out of it were all abject failures. And so what was funny about it was that what was supposed to be the means to the end became the end. And what was supposed to be the end became just a really a nice try, a creative nice try. So it was uh, quite an experience, a very successful failure. But as a corollary, it turned out that as we got the event space up and running, which was really, it was a wonderful facility, and we had all sorts of uh, incredible musical and artistic talent go through the doors of the Vanguard over the years, I heard from one of my promoters that Bill Maher's girlfriend at the time was a regular Saturday attendee. She came to the Vanguard every Saturday night, that it was her favorite club. And so, of course, when I heard this, I said, oh, my gosh, I've got to meet her. I love Bill Maher. I've been watching Politically Incorrect and then Real Time with Bill Maher 
forever, and I would love to have him over to the club and have a drink. That would be definitely something off the bucket list. And so I met her uh, the following Saturday, and I said, if you could ever get Bill down here to have a drink on me, it would be uh, just an absolute thrill. And she said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And then about a week later, I got a phone call from a number I don't recognize, and it was her. And she said, hey, you know, I told Bill about you. I don't know when I'm going to be able to get him down, but we're having some friends over for Christmas. How would you like to come and say hello? And so I didn't need to be asked twice. I hung up the phone, and I was beaming ear to ear. My smile went from ear to ear. And eventually, I just couldn't wait for the night to come, and it did. And when I showed up, I was expecting that there was going to be a big party and valet parkers and and traffic leading into uh, where the party was. It was at his house in Beverly Hills. And I show up, and nothing. There's nobody. And I, I go up to a gate, and I ring the doorbell, and someone says, hello. And I said, hi, it's Jordan. I was invited to show up. And they said, oh, yeah, sure, come drive around the front. And sure enough, I got invited to a party where it was about, you know, him and 10 of his friends, um, you know, in the kitchen with everybody with their shoes off. And it was just one of the most magical nights. Um, I had met people who were responsible for TV shows that I loved, like Arrested Development. The head writer was there. Uh, I met some activists. And it was just a really wonderful night. And what occurred from there was I was invited to go start seeing the shows uh, on Friday night. And, of course, I went because I was going to be watching them on television anyway. And afterwards, I was invited to go hang out in the green room and uh, have a drink with Bill and the guests and some, some snacks. And that became a regular thing for about five years of my life, where every Friday night I would go to the taping, I would go to the green room, uh, and then when the time was right, because I'm in the West Coast, of course, the show shot at 7 p.m., so at about 9 or 10 o'clock, I'd roll into the Vanguard and uh, open the club up for a Friday night. So it was one of the truly incredible experiences of my life. And um, what I would say is that the, of all the guests that I met, the most compelling were always the least famous. Mm. <laughs> Did you ever get a chance to meet the uh, South Park creators? No, amazingly not. I, apparently, one of them came to the Vanguard one night for a Halloween party, but he did so uh, deep in costume, and so we weren't aware of it until after he left. So, unfortunately, I never got to thank them for inspiring me on this incredible adventure that I had. That's a great story. You know, I forgot about that, that they did the viral email that, that you know, taught everybody that that show was going to be just hilarious. And I just, I, I, I can't remember which one of the guys, but when he, when they went to the Emmys or whatever, and he was wearing the JLo dress, that green dress that she had wore. And that was just so funny. They went and drag. Oh, those, those guys just kill me. <laughs> oh, and I have subsequently seen the book of Mormon, uh, which is a Broadway show that they created, which is also, it's like a live action South Park episode. So uh, yeah, I am a, I'm an unabashed fan. Yeah, I, I just noticed there's people down in Australia are going to that. So I guess it's uh, it's gone. It's done really well. It's it's won a ton of awards, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's so groundbreaking in so many ways. Uh, and the irony, and I think that they poke fun of this themselves, is that um, you know the animation that they use is actually so unsophisticated that um, what ends up happening is that the writing is so superb that it kind of makes up for it. And and it's almost like the animation isn't a distraction from the genius of the storytelling. 
and and plus they can do things that are so topical and get a show out so fast where I, I understand the Simpsons takes like six months to produce an episode where South Park can blast something out in a couple of weeks. And so they can be a lot more topical. It's, it, the, the speed with which they work is, is almost jaw-dropping. It, it almost defies human uh, understanding. Because, uh, yeah, I, I've seen a documentary of, of them, how they get ready for a show and uh, how quickly they turn it around. So right. yeah, I, I, I think too. the talent there is, is just remarkable. It is. It is. The, 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 the animators and stuff sleeping under their desk, getting ready for them to finish up the, the, the script or whatever, the voices. And it's just hilarious. Those guys are amazing. They've done so well with that with that program. Well, well you know what, Jordan, it's funny too, just because when you think about how much effort goes into it, but fortunately, what they have to show for it when everything is done, and uh, you can see how it would be so motivating to pour your heart and soul into every day that you're working on it, simply because there is something that you can be so proud of at the end uh, to see the fruits of your your labor. And so, uh, I, I even find that inspiring. I do too. It's, a, it's an incredible body of work. Well, Jordan, unfortunately, I told you this is just going to fly by. We're up against our first break. So I know when we come back, Ed's going to get you from entrepreneur to behavioral economics and ask you how you made that transition. How'd you, how'd you make that pivot? But in the meantime, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out thesoulofenterprise.com. We will have full show notes with our interview with Jordan today. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise and we are with Jordan Birnbaum. Uh, Jordan, so you're hanging out with Bill Maher. You're, you know, on, on, on the weekends. You, you've got this great club, and now you're the VP and Chief Behavioral Economist of a payroll company. So you gotta you got to make that leap for me. 
Oh, that's not the typical linear progression that you uh, come across no. in most people's yeah, careers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, uh, so interestingly, this ties back um, both Vanguard and Juno uh, in terms of what initiated the path that led me here. So when I was back at Juno, which was uh, an email, a free email company that was ad-supported and eventually became a, a free web service that was ad-supported that would go on to merge with Net Zero. But for a long time, we were ad-supported, and eventually I took on the role of the head of sales uh, for Juno, and that was an incredible adventure in and of itself, and it involved training the salespeople on how to pitch and how to follow up and what our various policies were uh, to structure deals and the like. And I had that experience sort of tucked away in my pocket, and now fast forward about uh, eight or nine years, and I'm at the Vanguard, and I'm now training my security guards on how they are to handle crowd flow, what to happen, what, what to do when uh, various outcomes occur, uh, anticipating problems and the like. And I had this epiphany where while I'm training my security guards, I was having a flashback to training my salespeople, and the, the epiphany was, you know, explaining what to do is not actually that hard. What's hard to do is to get people to care. You know, how can I get people to care enough about this that they want to do well? And I was just so struck how training in these two very different environments ultimately came down to the same fundamental thing. And the universe working the way that it does, uh, within a week, I somehow came across an article that was talking about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And, of course, what I had been dancing around uh, the prior week without realizing what the terminology was, was I was trying to figure out how do you tap into intrinsic motivation. Now, for people who are like me, when I came across this article and don't know what the difference is, um, extrinsic motivation is motivation driven by some kind of external factor. So in a job, you could say an extrinsic motivation is a promotion or a raise or compensation or to avoid a demotion or a penalty of some kind. And so extrinsic motivations are all around us in all, every aspect of our lives. But then intrinsic motivation, that's motivation being driven by an internal desire. In other words, you're doing something because you want to. And as it turns out, in corporate America, one of the great mysteries is how can we unlock intrinsic motivation in our employees? And by the time I got to the end of that article, I was hooked. And I said, oh gosh, I, I have been practicing, practicing this my whole life without realizing what I was doing. And I can't wait to learn more. And so it was on that day that my passion for industrial and organizational psychology was born. And I knew that I had to find a way to incorporate the knowledge of IO psychology in as broad a context as I possibly could. And so a couple of years later, I fortunately was able to sell the Vanguard. We had an interested buyer. We sort of had our run. Uh, the media play didn't work, so I was really excited to move on to the next phase of my life. And uh, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, so even though I had spent the previous 10 years in L.A., I came back to New York, closer to the family, and the thought was, well, what comes next? And I decided... Let's go get our master's in IO psychology because that is what is really driving my interest and passion now. And so I went to NYU and started to learn about IO psychology. And when you take a step back and you become familiar with the two 
fields, what you come to learn is that biopsychology is essentially behavioral economics that's focused on the workplace. Um, but both of these fields are trying to identify and then apply an understanding of what makes people tick, what makes them productive and satisfied and fulfilled, what makes them feel alienated and disengaged and the like. Um, how can you drive pro-social positive behaviors? How can you uh, help people avoid negative choices? And so in the field of behavioral economics, it covers all the realms of human activity within industrial and biopsychology. It asks the exact same questions, but very specifically focused on the workplace. So when you learn about industrial and organizational psychology, you're also learning about behavioral economics. As it happens, economics was my major in undergrad, so I had a bit more familiarity with some of the higher-level economics principles, and behavioral economics is essentially the marriage of classical economics and psychology, and so, of course, this was the field for me, so I finished up my master's degree in IO psychology and then started self-teaching myself everything that I could about behavioral economics and uh, reading everything that there was to read, uh, rereading it a second time and taking notes to the point where I needed to transfer all this stuff to my long-term memory so that in a professional setting, I could think to myself, what are five principles of behavioral economics that I can think of to use right now to address this particular problem? And how would I customize those five approaches to this particular situation? And then I would be able to have that understanding and start running tests, um, whether I'm trying to incentivize leaders to become better, whether I'm trying to incentivize people to adopt a new protocol, uh, whether I am merely trying to write communications that are more engaging, how can we start to use our understanding of behavioral economics towards uh, positive outcomes? And so I could probably take a step back and, and start defining for you what behavioral economics is uh, based on my understanding, uh, but I do want to tell you ultimately how I got to ADP. Uh, so why don't I finish that story and then we can have the broader conversation. Sure. But after I uh, got my master's, my plan was at this stage in my career to begin a consulting practice uh, in applied behavioral economics and IO psychology. And in a quintessential New York story, a friend of mine called me, said he was going to a cocktail party in Brooklyn. Would I like to come? I said, sure, no other plans. And I showed up, and there's this gentleman talking about how he builds these apps in the workplace where people tell him what they need, and he builds them exactly that, and then he hands it to them, and sure enough, they never use it. And so I made some wise-ass remark like, oh, sorry about that, some wiseacre remark <laughs> like, um, well, the next time you do that, tell them that other people are using it, and then they'll be more likely to use it. And he said, well, what are you talking about? And I started talking about the power of social proof and how that motivates human behavior at a very powerful yet unconscious level. And by the end of the conversation, he, he gave me some compliment like, well, I've learned more in the last 15 minutes than I have in the last you know, five years. And I said, great, then hire me. I'm starting a consulting practice. And he said, you're hired. And sure enough, uh, ADP became the first big fish that I landed for the consulting practice. I had a couple of little 
fish at that point, but this was the first big fish. And so I was thrilled, and that's how the relationship began, and that it grew from there based on some successful endeavors that we did here at ADP. Really neat. Well, we've got about three or four minutes before our break, and I just wanted to ask you this question. Ron and I are big fans of behavioral economics, have studied some of the literature, I'm sure not at the level, quite at the level that you have. And I, I know this to be true because I could not ch- cite chapter and verse like like you can. But what, one thing that's that's puzzled me and I've struggled with in my mind is what is it, where do you see the difference between nudging and manipulation? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I have probably um, an unexpected answer to that. And my answer is that every single form of human communication is manipulation. If I see that you're feeling down and I put my hand on your shoulder and say, hey, you know, hang in there, I'm trying to manipulate you. If I learn something really interesting that I think will be applicable and helpful to you in your life and I share that insight with you, I'm manipulating you. Um, The reason that that sounds funny is because we have this negative association with the idea of manipulation when what really defines whether manipulation is good or bad is what is our ultimate intention. I would argue that until human beings are capable of telepathy, manipulation is literally the only choice we have. And so ultimately what it comes down to is towards what end are you trying to manipulate someone? If you're trying to manipulate someone to invest earlier in their retirement, to eat healthier, uh, to be more uh, honest and expressive, uh, that suddenly doesn't feel like manipulation because your intentions are good and the word manipulation feels badly. Of course, if I'm trying to get you to buy a product that you don't need, if I'm trying to fool you into doing something that benefits me but doesn't benefit you, uh, that suddenly does feel like manipulation and is worthy of our scorn. So ultimately, I guess the answer to the question is, um, what, the way that I distinguish between what's a nudge and what's a manipulation is, what is the intention? And if the intention is in the interest of the person you're trying to influence, you're good, green, green light. If it's against the interest of the person that you're trying to influence, then you've crossed an ethical line. Sure, and then the question be- becomes is, well, who, who decides what is in someone else's interest, Right. They can they can just say well I may want I may it may be in my best interest but I do things that are in not in my best interest all the time. So right now we sort of uh, cross over into the philosophical realm um, and so the answer is no one or at least it's the decider who should be the one who can sort of make that decision. And so I think one of the best practices in behavioral economics is that um, we expose what it is that we're trying to do as we're doing it. So let me give you a a clear example. There's a concept in in behavioral economics called loss aversion, which states that human beings are twice as motivated to avoid losses as they are to secure gains. So avoiding losses is way more important to us than it is to secure gains of any kind. So how would I apply this to a problem like leadership development? I could say to a leader, think of all the career advancement and promotions that you stand to gain by improving as a leader. Or I could say, think of all the promotions and career advancement that you stand to lose by not improving as a leader. 
And the second sentence, by changing two words, becomes twice as powerful and twice as motivating. But the point is, is that I can say to someone as a follow-up, by the way, I'm putting that in the context of what you stand to lose because I know that human beings are much more impacted by that. And what study after study has shown in behavioral economics is that revealing the behavioral economics tactic while it's being deployed has no negative influence on the outcome. So um, I have a joke oftentimes when I'm doing a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, I always put on the first slide uh, an image of an audience laughing and clapping. And I always start off every presentation I give with, you might be wondering why I have an image of this audience uh, laughing and clapping. And the answer is because I'm priming you to find me to be absolutely delightful. And it usually gets a laugh. And I say, at the end of the presentation, you can let me know whether or not it works. But it is the ultimate example of what I'm talking about, is that um, for behavioral economists, I think that when we have the opportunity to demonstrate what it is that we're doing, uh, we, we try to, because it is just another layer of transparency and building trust in terms of what it is that you're trying to help the person accomplish. Um, my second answer to the question, which I suspect... And I'm going to cut you there because I want to make sure that we have uh, get to our break on time and, and Ron can pick it up after. But uh, I want to remind our audience, you can hold, hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can get show notes to previous shows, including this one with Jordan, and previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Finishing up that story with Ed, so I'll go ahead and let you make that second, your second part of the answer. Talking about how being transparent in our behavioral design with the users is one way that we can avoid any kind of ethical uh, gray areas. But a second thing that we can do is just to educate the public as much as humanly possible about behavioral economics and about how it works and how it can influence us uh, both for good and for bad. Um, I would say that even though behavioral economics as a field uh, is, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 years old, depending on maybe 30 years old, depending on where you mark the beginning, um, Nonetheless, much of it has been in practice for hundreds of years. Uh, anybody who watched Mad Men would realize that the ad agencies back in the 50s were heavily employing uh, psychology of persuasion and all other advertisements, the difference being that back then no one knew what that stuff was outside of the ad agencies. And now that it's become an academic field, there's a much broader-based understanding of how we're all being persuaded and influenced at, at an unconscious level pretty much from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep. Right. I, you know, it's funny you say that because I remember there was a guy and I forget his name, but we, I t we talked about him on one of the shows that we did and he um, was a psychologist and he found his way in an advertising agency and he was responsible for like the Duncan Hines cake mix. And what they figured out was if they made the person baking the cake bust an egg into it, they sold more. Because there was like a endow, I don't know if it's an endowment effect or the IKEA effect or whatever, but they they actually felt like they had a hand in in baking the cake, even though it was a mix. But you had to crack an egg, so it gave them that sense, you know sense of satisfaction of doing something. Um, and the cake becomes more valuable because they created it. So yeah, that's a fabulous insight. Yeah, um, you know, we had on, I think we talked about this in, uh, at, at our dinner, but we've had on Rory Sutherland, and he created a nudge unit at Ogilvy uh, in the UK. He's um, senior vice president there. And he, he's, he, when he was president of the IPA, which is their ad agency association, he was basically telling advertising agencies, he said, you know, agencies have developed models for how advertising works. He says, now what's needed is for agencies to base their business on how people work. And he was basically saying if the ad agencies don't become behavioral economists, they're going to become irrelevant. And when you, I know Silicon Valley has got, you know, behavioral economists like at Airbnb and Uber. I've read about some of their work and the economists in other places. Um, can you share any examples about how you specifically apply some of these principles to what you do at ADP? So, uh, once again, I've got two answers for you, uh, one micro and one macro. Beautiful. And uh, if it's okay, I'd like to start with the micro. Sure. Uh, so, and by the way, it's, uh, you can always tell an economist when they're using words like micro and macro to describe uh, two levels of, of specificity. <laughs> I but, use it all um, the time. The micro. <laughs> <laughs> So the micro example is a product that we built. It's a specific product. It's called Compass, and uh, Compass is basically a behavioral economics tool. Uh, so let me just share with you sort of how it works, and I think it's a great example of how we use um, specifically the techniques from behavioral economics to sort of reimagine 
a tool to fix a common problem. So the problem that we're trying to deal with here is, I mentioned it earlier, it's leadership development. And what we saw when we looked at what was happening out there um, in terms of leadership development is that it primarily consisted of someone coming in and, and telling stories and uh, providing insights and, and encouraging people to think differently. Uh, and then when the session was over, they would hand out a survey and the survey would ask, did you find this session to be useful? And people would invariably say yes. And then the trainers would say, look, leadership training works. And, of course, it didn't um, because even if people retained the information uh, in that session, they forgot it by the time that they went home. And so we knew that if we actually wanted to uh, have an impact, we had to take a very different approach. And through a lot of iterating and testing and the like, we came up with a product that has three components. So the first component of Compass is an upward review feedback survey. So you're a manager, you've got a team, uh, we send a survey to the team that say, you know, on a scale of one to five, to what extent do you feel understood when you speak with your manager? Uh, to what extent do you feel that your development is being supported? To what extent do you feel sufficiently recognized? Um, and we would start to collect that feedback, and that was the first component of what we used. The, we made two important behavioral decisions in what we did with that feedback. So the first question becomes, who do you share it with? You certainly share it with the leader, but do you also share it with HR and the boss's boss? And our answer was no. We share it only with the leader. We don't share it with HR, and we don't share it with the boss's boss, and this is why. When a leader gets feedback, especially if it's constructive or critical feedback, and they know that that feedback is being shared externally, their natural human reaction is to go into impression management mode. They are going to go to HR and they are going to go to their boss and try to make the case for why this constructive feedback was unfair and it shouldn't be considered in the evaluation of the manager's performance. Now, if that's what's happening, what do you think are the chances that that same manager is going to use the feedback to drive their own development? It's none. They're trying to discredit the feedback, so they're right. certainly not going to be motivated to develop to address it. So one of the good guesses that we made was that if we share this only with the manager, their appetite to use it to actually become a better version of themselves would be significantly larger than if we distributed it externally. So that was a first big design decision that was taking a very behavioral lens into how human beings actually operate. Um, I think in corporate America, we often like to model ourselves on perfect human beings. You know, we expect bosses to be totally open to feedback and totally transparent and willing to do what's best for their teams and to put the needs of the teams above their own. How closely that models actual human behavior is a subject of much debate. So we're abandoning any expectations of the perfect angelic manager and expecting them to be people. And so this was one choice that was very important towards that regard. A second component of Compass is the feedback report. Now, we know that we're sharing it only with the manager. We're keeping, of course, the individual scores anonymous so the manager doesn't know who on their team provided what score. But at a minimum, we've removed any kind of anxiety um, from the equation. And now we're still going to give them the feedback. And this is where we thought a lot about framing. 
Okay, framing is a behavioral economics technique that describes how identical information presented differently can have very different outcomes. So the classic example is that a doctor could say to you, uh, you've contracted a disease with a 90% survival rate, or you've contracted a disease with a 10% mortality rate. That is the identical piece of information, and yet people will have wildly different reactions to it. In fact, uh, studies have shown that when people hear about their disease in terms of the mortality rate, they are far more pessimistic about their recovery options, uh, or recovery chances, and they don't follow through with their treatment plans as well. So we know that human beings have the capacity to be strictly speaking, irrational, because there shouldn't be a different reaction to a 90% survival rate or a 10% mortality rate. It's the same piece of information, and yet there is. So how you present feedback is going to have a huge impact on what happens with it. So the first thing we were thinking to ourselves is how can we present this feedback in a way that's not going to make managers feel defensive? And then we had a really important insight, uh, and this comes from the world, again, of IO psychology. There's something called the idiosyncratic rater effect, which is basically a fancy way of saying that when you receive feedback, it has less to do with you and more to do with the person providing the feedback. So usually when you're getting feedback and someone's saying that you're either really good at giving recognition or you're really bad at giving recognition, what's actually being exposed is what is their level of need for recognition, more so than your objective performance. And normally, in assessments, this is the bane of the assessment maker because they're trying their best to capture objective and measurable feedback. So we took the other approach, and we leaned right into that. And so in these feedback reports, we say right at the top, this is not an accurate and objective measure of your performance. Rather, this feedback is surfacing the unique needs of your unique team. So with this team, if the lowest score was recognition, what that means is this team has a particularly high need for recognition. If you had a different team, they might have a high need for development or inclusivity. But with this team, it's recognition. So if you want to be the best manager for this team that you can be, focusing on recognition is the way to go. And in twisting that framing, we're suddenly now, instead of making a manager feel criticized or on their heels, all of a sudden we're now a help. We're providing insights to help them understand how to be better, having nothing to do with who they are. And so we felt like that framing was going to be crucial towards the success of our ultimate efforts. Right. And then the last oh, component great. and the last sort of behavioral intention in this product is the coaching. So what we realized and what we know from behavioral economics is that education is insufficient to drive behavior change. Merely telling somebody some piece of information almost never leads to a change in behavior. It requires some kind of focused, ongoing intervention, uh, the same way that we need repetition to move information from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. Uh, we need the same thing with regards to creating new habits and the like. So our thought was, of course, we couldn't just hand this feedback report to the leader and expect that our jobs were done. At the same time, we needed a solution that was scalable and realistic. And so what we came up with was basically a series of nudges. We designed an eight-week coaching curriculum that would correspond to each of the things that we were measuring. And so for each manager, whatever the greatest team need was that was surfaced, we would send that manager eight weeks in a row an email about the topic. 
and basically following the tenets of adult learning theory, making the case for why you should care about this, why it's worth your time and attention, and then eventually here are some things that you can do to make a positive difference. So the idea for us was that even if people didn't read the emails, simply receiving them and seeing in the subject line uh, the word reciprocity, uh, reciprocity or recognition or development or inclusivity showing up each week. So if I'm getting close to recognition, my coaching subject email lines are week one, recognition, here's why coach thinks you're cool. Week two, recognition, other people are the worst. Week three, recognition, and so on and so forth. But you might be getting week one. One, inclusivity, here's why coach thinks you're cool. What we knew we were doing was we were priming the leaders. We were raising the availability of the idea of whatever it was that they were focusing on. We were bringing that idea top of mind. And our hypothesis was that doing that would be enough to move the needle. It would be a reminder to the leader to care about recognition, and that would be enough to make them more likely to start providing recognition. So the big question was, did it work? We rolled this out with an ADP. We had 65,000 participants over multiple iterations. We've had more than 65 managers enroll in this email-based coaching. And here's what I can share has happened. Um, so we would measure 12 items at a time and provide coaching on one. So we take the assessment, provide the coaching, and then retake the assessment. The 11 items on which people didn't receive any coaching, the scores remained identical. The one item on which people received their coaching, the score improved by 10%. So what we could say is that the uncoached items were our control group. If uh, This was not a, a, an example of regression to the mean. It's not just that their lowest score automatically went up, because if that were the case, then their other low scores would go up. In this case, right. we could say it was the coaching that led to the measured improvement from the team themselves. In the world of leadership development, getting a 10% improvement on a behavior is a monumental achievement, and it we is. were obviously overjoyed with the results, and this then went from being an internal ADP initiative into an external product, and we now have over 100 clients who are using Compass. Uh, it's only about a year old since we went to market, so it's been a really great success, and, and the thing that I always say when talking about Compass is we don't know anything about leadership that everybody else doesn't also know. Where Compass was a breakthrough was in the application of behavioral economics. What we did right was we made great guesses about how people would react to these various components and how we could anticipate and then structure those reactions in ways that would be most productive to the kind of positive outcomes that we wanted. And that's why with our first effort right out of the box, Compass was producing numbers that people would have told us were impossible. And that's a demonstration of the power of behavioral economics from my perspective. That's fantastic, Jordan. Wow, this is way beyond payroll. <laughs> but unfortunately, oh, yeah. we're past so time for our beyond. third we're past time for our third break. But folks, I'd like to remind you if you want to uh, contact Ed or myself, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash us forward slash soe have you ever read a book that changed your life i sure have but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life me neither hello i'm greg kite i wrote the forward to ron baker and ed kless's new ebook the soul of enterprise dialogues on business and the knowledge economy the value of this book is found entirely in its forward so when you buy it think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free available now for download exclusively on amazon.com When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are with Jordan Birnbaum, who is with ADP. He is the vice president and also works in their behavioral and chief, I'm sorry, chief behavioral economist. And Jordan, I would be remiss. One of the things that that Ron and I often talk about on this show is is pricing and proposal construction. So I wanted to get your thoughts on on one thing that that uh, has perplexed me. You know, we Ron and I recommend that that three choices seem to be what's optimal in terms of uh, creating a, a proposal offering. Uh, one, is that something you're seeing as well? And what about add-ons to options? Do you think that that becomes confusing at a certain point? And where's the, where's the line between complexity and creating effective choices? Good news for you, which is that your proposal is uh, backed by science um, about limiting it to three options. There is absolutely something uh, in our world called choice overload. Um, And the general rule of thumb is that every additional choice that you offer decreases your overall take rate. Um, And it certainly the difference between one and two is not as severe as the difference between maybe five and six, uh, but there is unquestionably a point where you start to see diminishing returns overall with each of the choices that you offer, and there's a very famous experiment that demonstrates this, and it's uh, all about jam. So um, two very astute social scientists picked Uh, an affluent supermarket and they went in and they set up a stand where customers could come by and sample jam. And if they liked any of the jam, then of course they would go ahead and buy it. And the real experiment, of course, was not whether or not this jam that they were selling was any good, but it was trying to look at choice overload. And so what they did was they would alternate between um, sessions where they would offer 24 different types of jam for people to select or people to sample, and again with six selections. Uh, So one hour there would be 24, another hour six. They made sure to randomize it so that they weren't capturing any other unintended effects. And the long and the short of it was that whenever they would offer 24 selections, they would generate a purchase rate of 3%. 
So 3% of the people who stopped by uh, would ultimately go on to become a purchaser. When they offered six selections, any guess to what the purchase rate was? Uh, 8%. 30. 3 wow. zero. So this is an experiment that has been replicated, so it doesn't have the, the sort of social science replicability problem, um, and it just demonstrates how our ability to process multiple choices requires so much cognitive energy that it actually provides us with a disincentive to engage altogether. Um, and I think that when it comes to choices, it actually is representative of kind of a broader connective thread across all of behavioral economics, and, and that is this. The human brain only has so much energy. It only has so much focus that it can exert over the course of a day. Now, for some of it, we have more than others, but we all have limits. Um, there's only so much information that we can take in, and there's only so much energy that we can put into analyzing and making decisions. As a result, Human beings tend to engage in two types of thinking that I'm certain you have heard about uh, from the past behavioral economists you've spoken with. Uh, system one, which is very fast and easy and intuitive and unconscious, and system two, which is very slow and deliberate and conscious and uh, exhausting. And the big takeaway is that overwhelmingly we choose to spend our time in system one thinking whenever possible. And here's why that matters. Whenever you're trying to engage with anyone in any way, the more that you make them think, the less likely you are to be successful. Now, that's not to say that you can always engage everyone at a system one level, that life is too complicated. There, there's no hard and fast rules. But we generally need to know that the more cognitive effort we require, the less success we're going to have. And that is really well represented by the difference between giving people 24 selections to try versus six. Six is a much easier number. To, to, you don't have to make lots of hard choices. You could sample them all without throwing up. Um, there's so many things about six jam choices that are optimal to drive sales, and that exists in every facet of engaging with human beings. Okay, we've got about 90 seconds left, so I want to ask you, if you're creating a business proposal for a relatively complex engagement, do you think, it, it, is, is there a difference between three choices and four choices? That's, a hard, to, that's hard to say because it is ultimately context-specific, and I would need an experiment to know, um, you know, for example, if you're dealing with a new client in an accounting profession, um, how that translates and, and what amount of system uh, two thinking that a client brings to bear. But as a general rule, cut everything that you can. Um, and when you're dealing with complex presentations, I would say that you're best to keep at the initial meetings just the high level uh, and keep the detail down for subsequent follow-up meetings with specialists. Um, if you start getting too far into the weeds at a high-level presentation, you're going to lose your audience. Outstanding. Well, Jordan, this has been fascinating. Really appreciate you taking the time and, and hanging with us for this hour. Uh, Ron, we got, what do we got going on next week? Next week, we're going to talk about using a tip clause. All right. Well, I guess I'll see you in 167 hours.
This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, feel free to check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. And you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voice